in a class all by itself, my jazz friends. It is one of a kind, the most unique sound ever created, the Mighty P Podcast and the original Sinbad. Together, we're putting together a two-hour special about We Are The People, celebrating the best of times right along with the worst of time, black history, America's history, the bad, the good, and the ugly. Pass the information, extend the knowledge. Pass the information, extend the knowledge. John Coltrane said, I love Supreme. I interpret that too. All living things. Donnie Hathaway said, the ghetto. Woody Shaw said, why? John F. Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Pass the information. Martin Luther King said, I have a dream. Stevie Wonder said, inner vision, interpretation, watch with your ears. Aretha Franklin said, respect. Barry White said, love. Nina Simone said, to be young, get it. James Brown said, stay in school. Panama Alley said, sometimes we're not prepared for adversity. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Oliver Nelson said, stolen moments. Isley Brothers said, harvest for the world. I know there can be Rodney Franklin says you'll never know. Hubert Law said, say it with silence. Nancy Wilson said, guess who I saw today? Earth. Wind and fire said, keep your head to the sky. I know there is a force far wiser than I. The creator has a master plan. From the pen of Leon Thomas and Pharaoh Sanders. Alex Haley said, Roots. Gerald Wilson said, you better believe it. Charlie Parker said, now is the time. Wake up! Billy Holiday said, God bless the child. LTD said, love, togetherness, and devotion. Bobby Bland said, as soon as the weather breaks. Sam Cook said, you send me. Roy Ayer says, believe in yourself. Bill Scott Heron said, Winter in America. 
Master Gillis is grazing in the grass. Richard Pryor said, How long? How long will it take for us to become one? How long will it take for us to become unified? How long will it take us to understand the meaning of understanding? How long will it take us to do what we have to do that's most How long will it take our priorities to oversee? How long is how long it will take us? We must see beyond the obvious. Focusing and pursue. Wake up. See beyond the eye. Remember the path so you can deal with the future. Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Marcus Garvey, Rick Holmes, Miriam Makiba. Richard Pryor, Adam Clayton Powell, Martin Luther King, Elijah Muhammad, W.B. Du Bois, Frederick Douglass, Nat Turner. Shirley Chisholm, Ron Dullums, Andrew Young, Anwar Sadat, Clara Holmes, George. Washington Carter Caesar Chavez Sidney Fortier Count Basie Duke Ellis Fats Navarro Art Taylor Fats Wild Bill Rodney, Eric Dawkins, Rasan Moore, Paul Robin, Stevie Wonder, Minnie Ripperton, Louis Armstrong, people and more have made strong contributions to mankind because of their compassion and humanitarianism dealing with their self-identification based around love and unity these men are now profound and 
pleasure to present to this great audience young John Lewis, National Chairman, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Brother John Lewis. Today for jobs and freedom. But we have nothing to be proud of, for hundreds and thousands of our brothers are not here, for they're receiving starvation wages or no wages at all. While we stand here, there are sharecroppers in the Delta of Mississippi who are in the field working for less than $3 a day, 12 hours a day. While we stand here, there are students in jail on trumped-up charges. Our brother James Farmer, along with many others, is also in jail. We come here today with a great sense of misgiving. It is true that we support the administration's civil rights bill. We support it with great reservation, however. Unless, unless Tile 3 is put in this bill, there's nothing to protect the young children and old women who must face police jobs and fire hoses in the South while they engage in peaceful demonstration. In its present form, this bill will not protect the citizen of Danville, Virginia, who must live in constant fear of a police state. It will not protect the hundreds and thousands of people who have been arrested upon Trump charges. What about the three young men, Snickfield's secretary in America's Georgia, who faced the death penalty for engaging in peaceful protests. As it stands now, the voting section of this bill will not help the thousands of black people who want to vote. It will not help the citizens of Mississippi, of Alabama, and Georgia who are qualified to vote but lack a sixth grade education. One man, one vote is the African crime. It is our tool. It must be ours. We must have legislation that will protect the Mississippi sharecropper, who is put off of his farm because he dared to register to vote. We need a bill that will provide for the homeless and starving people of this nation. We need a bill that will ensure the equality of a maid who earns $5 a week in a home of a family total income is $100,000 a year. We must have a good FEPC bill. My friends, let us not forget that we are involved in a serious social revolution. A fine large American politics is dominated by politicians who build their career on immoral compromise and align themselves with open form of political, economic, and social exploitation. There are exceptions, of course. We salute those. But what political leader can stand up and say, my party is the party of principles? For the party of Kennedy is also the party of Eastland. The party of Javis is also the party of Goldwater. Where is our party? Where is the political party that will make it unnecessary to march on Washington? Where is the political party that would make it unnecessary to march in the streets of Birmingham? 
where is the political party that will protect the citizen of Albany, Georgia? Do you know that in Albany, Georgia, nine of our leaders have been indicted, not by the Dixocrats, but by the federal government for peaceful protests? But what did the federal government do when Albany Deputy Sheriff beat Attorney C.B. King and left him half dead? What did the federal government do when local police official kicked and assaulted the pregnant wife of Slater King and she lost her baby? Those who have said be patient and wait, we must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. We are tired. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We are tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. We do not want to go to jail, but we will go to jail if this, this is the price we must pay for love brotherhood and true peace. I appeal to all of you to get in this great revolution that is sweeping this nation. Get in and stay in the streets of every city, every village and hamlet of this nation until true freedom comes, until the revolution of 1776 is complete. We must get in this revolution and complete the revolution. For in the Delta of Mississippi, in Southwest Georgia, in the Black Belt of Alabama, in Harlem, in Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, and all over this nation, the black masses are on the march for Georgia and freedom. <laughs> the talking about slow down and stop. We will not stop. All of the forces of Eastland Barnett, Wallace, and Thurman will not stop this revolution. If we do not get meaningful legislation out of this Congress, the time will come when we will not confine our march into Washington. We will march through the South, through the streets of Jackson, through the streets of Danville, through the streets of Cambridge, through the streets of Birmingham. But we will march with the spirit of love and with the spirit of dignity that we have shown here today. By the forces of our demand, our determination, and our numbers, we shall splinter the segregated South into a thousand pieces and put them together in the image of God and democracy. We must say, wake up, America, wake up, for we cannot stop, and we will not and cannot be patient. Maybe the hardest part is you, if, if you teach, you have to live your teaching. Mm. You can't uh, say, you do, not as I do, but do as I say. No, no. You have to say, I'm doing my best to live what I teach. I have a painting by Phoebe of a group that she calls Sister Suki's Funeral. 
And they all the women, there are about nine women, and they, they all look like women in my grandmother's uh, prayer meeting group. So whenever I'm obliged to do something, I take that painting, and I look at that painting, there's an empty chair, and I think, now what would grandma do? What would she say? I can almost hear her voice say, now sister, you know what's right. Just do right. You don't really have to ask anybody. The truth is, right may not be expedient. It may not be profitable, but it will satisfy your soul. It brings you the kind of protection that bodyguards can't give you. Try to be all you can be, to be the best human being you can be. Try to be that in your church, in your temple. Try to be that in your classroom. Do it because it is right to do. You see, people will know you and they will add their prayers to your life. They'll wish you well. I think if your name is mentioned and people say, oh, hell, oh, damn, <laughs> I think you're doing something wrong. But if your name is mentioned and people say, oh, she's so sweet, he's so nice, oh, I love, oh, God bless her. There you are. So try to live your life in a way that you will not regret years of useless virtue and inertia and timidity. Take up the, uh, the battle. Take it up. It's yours. This is your life. This is your world. I'll be leaving it long before you under the ordinary set of circumstances. You make your own choices. You can decide life isn't worth living. And that would be the worst thing you can do. How do you know? So far. Try it. See. So pick it up, pick up the battle and, and make it a better world. Just where you are. Yes, and it can be better and it must be better, but it is up to us. When you see them on the freeway hitching rides with their dogs and their guitars by their sides, you need to ask, what's all the lying and the dying and the beating and the cheating all about? take time out. When you see him with the band around his head and an army surplus bunk that makes his bed, you need to ask, what's all the bleeding and the kneading, the lying and the spying all about? Take time out. Take a minute, feel some sorrow for the folks who thought tomorrow was a place that they could call up on the phone. Take a month and show some kindness for the folks who thought that blindness was an illness that affected eyes alone. When you see her walking barefoot in the rain, and you know she's tripping on a one-way train, you need to ask, what's all the selling and the yelling, the beating and the cheating all about? Take time out. Oh, you can sell your soul for money, then run off to the country for your cookouts and your parties on the lawns. While our children seek sedation, in Eastern meditation or visions that go shooting up their arms. When you know that youth is dying on the run and my daughter trades dope stories with your son, we better ask, what's all the bleeding and the needing, the killing 
and the thrilling all about. We better take time out and accept the fact that I am a rainbow in somebody's cloud, and I thank you. There's an African-American song, 19th century, which um, is so great. It says, when it looked like the sun wasn't gonna shine anymore, God put a rainbow in the clouds. Imagine. And I've had so many rainbows in my cloud. I had a lot of clouds. But I have had so many rainbows. And one of the things I do when I step up on a stage, when I stand up to translate, when I go to teach my classes, when I go to direct a movie, I bring everyone who has ever been kind to me with me. Black, white, Asian, Spanish-speaking, Native American, gay, straight, everybody. I say, come with me. I'm going on the stage. Come with me, I need you now. Long dead, you see? So I don't ever feel I have no help. I've had rainbows in my clouds. And the thing to do, it seems to me, is to prepare yourself so that you can be a rainbow in somebody else's cloud. Somebody who may not look like you, may not call God the same name you call God, if they call God at all, you see? And may not eat the same dishes prepared the way you do, may not dance your dances or speak your language but be a blessing to somebody. That's what I think. Dr. King was a human being. He had a sense of humor, which was wonderful. It is very dangerous to uh, make a person larger than life because then young men and women are tempted to believe, well, if he was that great, he's inaccessible. And I can never try to be that, or emulate that, or achieve that. The truth is, Martin Luther King was a human being with a brilliant mind, a powerful heart, and uh, an insight, and courage, and also with a sense of humor. So he was accessible. I mentioned courage, and I would, I would like to say something else about that, finding courage in the leaders and in you who will become leaders. Uh, courage is the most impo important of all the virtues because without courage, you can't practice any other virtue consistently. You see, you can't be consistently kind or fair or humane or generous, not without courage because if you don't have it, sooner or later you'll stop and say, ah, the threat is too much, the, the difficulty is too, too high, the, the challenge is, is too great. So I would like to say that Dr. King, while we know from all the publicity that he was brilliant and he was powerful, he was passionate and right, he was also a funny man. <laughs> and that, that's nice to know.
the Atlanta Compromise Speaker.
The Atlanta Compromise Speech by Booker T. Washington Mr. President and Gentlemen of the Board of Directors and Citizens, One-third of the population of the South is of the Negro race. No enterprise seeking the material, civil, or moral welfare of this section can disregard this element of our population and reach the highest success. I but convey to you, Mr. President and Directors, the sentiment of the masses of my race when I say that in no way have the value and manhood of the American Negro been more fittingly and generously recognized than by the managers of this magnificent exposition at every stage of its progress. It is a recognition that will do more to cement the friendship of the two races than any occurrence since the dawn of our freedom. Not only this, but the opportunity here afforded will awaken among us a new era of industrial progress. Ignorant and inexperienced, it is not strange that in the first years of our new life we began at the top instead of at the bottom, that a seat in Congress or the state legislature was more sought than real estate or industrial skill, that the political convention or stump speaking had more attractions than starting a dairy farm or truck garden. A ship lost at sea for many days suddenly sighted a friendly vessel. From the mast of the unfortunate vessel was seen a signal, Water, water, we die of thirst. The answer from the friendly vessel at once came back, Cast down your bucket where you are. A second time the signal, Water, water, send us water, ran up from the distressed vessel, and was answered, Cast down your bucket where you are. And a third and fourth signal for water was answered, Cast down your bucket where you are. The captain of the distressed vessel, at last heeding the injunction, cast down his bucket, and it came up full of fresh, sparkling water from the mouth of the Amazon River. To those of my race, who depend on bettering their condition in a foreign land, or who underestimate the importance of cultivating friendly relations with the southern white man who is their next-door neighbor, I would say, cast down your bucket where you are. Cast it down in making friends, in every manly way, of the people of all races by whom we are surrounded. Cast it down in agriculture, mechanics, in commerce, in domestic service, and in the professions. And in this connection it is well to bear in mind that whatever other sins the South may be called to bear, when it comes to business, pure and simple, it is in the South that the Negro is given a man's chance in the commercial world, and in nothing is this exposition more eloquent than in emphasizing this chance. Our greatest danger is that in the great leap from slavery to freedom we may overlook the fact that the masses of us are to live by the productions of our hands, and fail to keep in mind that we shall prosper in proportion as we learn to dignify and glorify common labor, and put brains and skill into the common occupations of life, shall prosper in proportion as we learn to draw the line between the superficial and the substantial, the ornamental gewgaws of life, and the useful, 
No race can prosper till it learns that there is as much dignity in tilling a field as in writing a poem. It is at the bottom of life we must begin, and not at the top. Nor should we permit our grievances to overshadow our opportunities. To those of the white race, who look to the incoming of those of foreign birth and strange tongue and habits for the prosperity of the South, were I permitted, I would repeat what I say to my own race. Cast down your bucket where you are. Cast it down among the eight millions of Negroes whose habits you know, whose fidelity and love you have tested in days when to have proved treacherous meant the ruin of your firesides. Cast down your bucket among these people who have, without strikes and labor wars, tilled your fields, cleared your forests, builded your railroads and cities, and brought forth treasures from the bowels of the earth, and helped make possible this magnificent representation of the progress of the South. Casting down your bucket among my people, helping and encouraging them as you are doing on these grounds, and to education of head, hand, and heart, you will find that they will buy your surplus land, make blossom the waste places in your fields, and run your factories. While doing this, you can be sure in the future, as in the past, that you and your families will be surrounded by the most patient, faithful, law-abiding, and unresentful people that the world has seen. As we have proved our loyalty to you in the past, in nursing your children, watching by the sickbed of your mothers and fathers, and often following them with tear-dimmed eyes to their graves, so in the future, in our humble way, we shall stand by you with the devotion that no foreigner can approach, ready to lay down our lives, if need be, in defense of yours, interlacing our industrial, commercial, civil, and religious life with yours, in a way that shall make the interests of both races one. In all things that are purely social, we can be as separate as the fingers, yet one as the hand, in all things essential to mutual progress. There is no defense or security for any of us, except in the highest intelligence and development of all. If anywhere there are efforts tending to curtail the fullest growth of the Negro, let these efforts be turned into stimulating, encouraging, and making him the most useful and intelligent citizen. Effort or means so invested will pay a thousand percent interest. These efforts will be twice blessed, blessing him that gives and him that takes. There is no escape through law of man or God from the inevitable. The laws of changeless justice bind oppressor with oppressed, and close as sin and suffering joined, we march to fate abreast. Nearly sixteen millions of hands will aid you in pulling the load upward, or they will pull against you the load downward. We shall constitute one-third or more of the ignorance and crime of the South, or one-third of its intelligence and progress. We shall contribute one-third to the business and industrial prosperity of the South, or we shall prove a veritable body of death, stagnating, depressing, retarding every effort to advance the body politic. Gentlemen of the Exposition, as we present to you our humble effort at an exhibition of our progress, you must not expect overmuch. 
Starting thirty years ago with ownership here and there and a few quilts and pumpkins and chickens, gathered from miscellaneous sources, remember the path that has led from these to the inventions and production of agricultural implements, buggies, steam engines, newspapers, books, statuary, carving, paintings, the management of drugstores and banks, has not been trodden without contact with thorns and thistles. While we take pride in what we exhibit as a result of our independent efforts, we do not for a moment forget that our part in this exhibition would fall far short of your expectations, but for the constant help that has come to our educational life, not only from the southern states, but especially from northern philanthropists, who have made their gifts a constant stream of blessing and encouragement. The wisest among my race understand that the agitation of questions of social equality is the extremest folly, and that progress in the enjoyment of all the privileges that will come to us must be the result of severe and constant struggle rather than of artificial forcing. No race that has anything to contribute to the markets of the world is long in any degree ostracized. It is important and right that all privileges of the law be ours, but it is vastly more important that we be prepared for the exercise of these privileges. The opportunity to earn a dollar in a factory just now is worth infinitely more than the opportunity to spend a dollar in an opera house. In conclusion, may I repeat that nothing in thirty years has given us more hope and encouragement, and drawn us so near to you of the white race, as this opportunity offered by the exposition, and here bending, as it were, over the altar that represents the results of the struggles of your race and mine, both starting practically empty-handed three decades ago, I pledge that in your effort to work out the great and intricate problem which God has laid at the doors of the South, you shall have at all times the patient, sympathetic help of my race. Only let this be constantly in mind, that, while from representations in these buildings, of the product of field, of forest, of mine, of factory, letters and art, much good will come, yet far above and beyond material benefits will be that higher good that, let us pray God, will come, in a blotting out of sectional differences and racial animosities and suspicions, in a determination to administer absolute justice, and a willing obedience among all classes to the mandates of law. This, coupled with our material prosperity, will bring into our beloved South a new heaven and a new earth. Please raise your right hand. Do you affirm that the testimony you're about to give before the committee will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. Let the record reflect that the judge has answered in the affirmative. And having met that requirement, you may now proceed with your remarks. Chairman Durbin, Ranking Member Grassley, and distinguished members of the Judiciary Committee, thank you for convening this hearing and for considering my nomination as Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. I am humbled and honored to be here. 
And I am also truly grateful for the generous introductions that my former judicial colleague, Judge Tom Griffith, and my close friend, Professor Lisa Fairfax, have so graciously provided. I'm also very thankful for the confidence that President Biden has placed in me and for the kindness that he and the First Lady and the Vice President and the Second Gentleman have extended to me and my family. Today will be the fourth time that I've had the honor of appearing before this committee to be considered for confirmation. Over the past three weeks, I have also had the honor of meeting each member of this committee separately. And I've met with 45 senators in total. Your careful attention to my nomination demonstrates your dedication to the crucial role that the Senate plays in this constitutional process, and I thank you. And while I'm on the subject of gratitude, I must also pause to reaffirm my thanks to God, for it is faith that sustains me at this moment. Even prior to today, I can honestly say that my life has been blessed beyond measure. The first of my many blessings is the fact that I was born in this great nation. A little over 50 years ago in September of 1970, Congress had enacted two civil rights acts in the decade before, and like so many who had experienced lawful racial segregation firsthand, my parents, Johnny and Ellery Brown, left their hometown of Miami, Florida, and moved to Washington, D.C. to experience new freedom. When I was born here in Washington, my parents were public school teachers. And to express both pride in their heritage and hope for the future, they gave me an African name, Katanji Onyika, which they were told means lovely one. My parents taught me that unlike the many barriers that they had had to face growing up, my path was clearer so that if I worked hard and I believed in myself in America, I could do anything or be anything I wanted to be. Like so many families in this country, they worked long hours and sacrificed to provide their children every opportunity to reach their God-given potential. My parents have been married for almost 54 years and they're here with me today. I cannot possibly thank them enough for everything they've done for me. I love you, mom and dad. My father in particular bears responsibility for my interest in the law. When I was four, we moved back to Miami so that he could be a full-time law student and we lived on the campus of the University of Miami Law School. During those years, my mother pulled double duty, working as the sole breadwinner of our family while also guiding and inspiring four-year-old me. My very earliest memories are of watching my father study. He had his stack of law books on the kitchen table while I sat across from him with my stack of coloring books. My parents also instilled in me and my younger brother, Kataj, the importance of public service. After graduating from Howard University, Kataj started out as a police officer, following two of our uncles. After the September 11th attacks on our country, 
Kataj volunteered for the army and eventually became an infantry officer serving two tours of duty in the Middle East. Kataj is here today providing his love and support as always. And speaking of unconditional love, I would like to introduce you to my husband of 25 years, Dr. Patrick Jackson. I have no doubt that without him by my side from the very beginning of this incredible professional journey, none of this would have been possible. We met in college more than three decades ago, and since then, he's been the best husband, father, and friend I could ever imagine. Patrick, I love you. William, Patrick's identical twin brother, is here as well, along with his wonderful wife, Dana. Also here from Park City, Utah, are Patrick's older brother, Gardy, and his wife, Natalie. And last, but certainly not least, my very dear in-laws, the matriarch and patriarch of the Jackson family, Pamela and Gardner Jackson, have traveled here from Boston to be with me today. I'm saving a special moment in this introduction for my daughters, Talia and Layla. Girls, I know it has not been easy as I've tried to navigate the challenges of juggling my career and motherhood. And I fully admit that I did not always get the balance right. But I hope that you've seen that with hard work, determination, and love, it can be done. I am so looking forward to seeing what each of you chooses to do with your amazing lives in this incredible country. I love you so much. There are so many others who are not here today, but whom I need to acknowledge. I have a large extended family on both sides. They are watching from Florida, North Carolina, New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, Massachusetts, Colorado, and beyond. I also have incredible friends. Three of my college roommates came here today to support me. And I have so many other boosters from Miami Palmetto Senior High School, Harvard undergrad, Harvard Law School, and all throughout my personal and professional life. I've also had extraordinary mentors, like my high school debate coach, Fran Berger. May she rest in peace. She invested fully in me, including taking me to Harvard, the first I'd ever really thought of it, to enter a speech competition. Mrs. Berger believed in me, and in turn, I believed in myself. In the category of great mentors, it was also my great good fortune to have had the chance to clerk for three brilliant jurists, U.S. District Judge Patty Saris, U.S. Court of Appeals Judge Bruce Selya, and Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. These extraordinary people were exceptional role models. Justice Breyer, in particular, not only gave me the greatest job that any young lawyer could ever hope to have, but he also exemplifies what it means to be a Supreme Court Justice of the highest level of skill and integrity, civility, and grace. It is extremely humbling to be considered for Justice Breyer's seat, and I know that I could never fill his shoes. But if confirmed, I would hope to carry on his spirit. 
On the day of his Supreme Court nomination, Justice Breyer said, quote, what is law supposed to do, seen as a whole? It is supposed to allow all people, all people, to live together in a society where they have so many different views, so many different needs, to live together in a way that is more harmonious, that is better, so that they can work productively together, end quote. I could not have said it better myself. Members of this committee, if I am confirmed, I commit to you that I will work productively to support and defend the Constitution and this grand experiment of American democracy that has endured over these past 246 years. I have been a judge for nearly a decade now, and I take that responsibility and my duty to be independent very seriously. I decide cases from a neutral posture. I evaluate the, the facts, and I interpret and apply the law to the facts of the case before me without fear or favor, consistent with my judicial oath. I know that my role as a judge is a limited one, that the Constitution empowers me only to decide cases and controversies that are properly presented. And I know that my judicial role is further constrained by careful adherence to precedent. Now, in preparing for these hearings, you may have read some of my more than 570 written decisions, and you may have also noticed that my opinions tend to be on the long side. That is because I also believe in transparency, that people should know precisely what I think and the basis for my decision. And all of my professional experiences, including my work as a public defender and as a trial judge, have instilled in me the importance of having each litigant know that the judge in their case has heard them, whether or not their arguments prevail in court. During this hearing, I hope that you will see how much I love our country and the Constitution and the rights that make us free. I stand on the shoulders of so many who have come before me, including Judge Constance Baker Motley, who was the first African-American woman to be appointed to the federal bench and with whom I share a birthday. And like Judge Motley, I have dedicated my career to ensuring that the words engraved on the front of the Supreme Court building, equal justice under law, are a reality and not just an ideal. Thank you for this historic chance to join the highest court, to work with brilliant colleagues, to inspire future generations, and to ensure liberty and justice for all.
as the director yells, shoot another scene, lights, camera, action, take 16, it's the finale, movie directors now play God, Hollywood scenes on big screens, robbing our ancient African legacies, these are the big screens, who would have guessed in the movie Exodus that you would have European characters dressed as us, playing out the lives of our ancient ancestors, just to fulfill something they'll never become, it's so ridiculous, right there from kings, acting the lives of our African kings, yo, how do you call that supreme man, when you claim to be rulers of the land man, but you impersonating rulers of up man, there ain't no secret, it's a cinematic hijack, follow the schemes and the plots of the white man's theme, so you can find the deep treasures in your African dreams, and like the sun to the sky, you eventually rise, and it'll all make sense in a matter of time. Yo, our people used to be the ruler of nations, blessed by creator of God, sent forth 
was all hidden In the core of your heart, it was all written We built pyramids, aligned them with the stars in the sky So the galaxies can bless us to the end of the time Funny this day, the only thing we can do is bow on our knees And praise Jesus and pray, now meditate that Understand the cinematic hijack The African Omex were here And charted this land long before Christopher Columbus claims of discovery Of a land that he discovered he was lost in so just know, your African identity has suffered a cinematic hijack, and the non-Africans who stole it has put you at a negative setback. So now is the time to stand up and do an identity take back. So brothers and sisters, be strong and deal with your African historical truth with an intellectual, educational mindset. When you know your truth, your truth shall set you free. Yes, indeed, my jazz brothers and sisters, my jazz friends, in a class all by itself. It is the Mighty P Podcast and the original Sinbad, celebrating the bad, the good, and the ugly, the legacy of black history, America's history. Give praise and honor to God for being good enough to allow us to be at this place at this time. When I look out at this convention, I see the face of America, red, yellow, brown, black, and white. We're all precious in God's sight, the real rainbow coalition. All of us, all of us who are here think that we are seated but we're really standing on someone's shoulders. Ladies and gentlemen, Mrs. Rosa Parks. The mother of the Civil Rights Movement. I want to express my deep love and appreciation for the support my family has given me over these past months. They have endured pain, anxiety, threat, and fear. But they have been strengthened and made secure by our faith in God, in America, and in you. Your love has protected us and made us strong. To my wife, Jackie, the foundation of our family, to our five children whom you met tonight, to my mother, Mrs. Helen Jackson, who is present tonight, and to our grandmother, Mrs. Matilda Burns, to my brother Chuck and his family, to my mother-in-law, Mrs. Gertrude Brown, who just last month at age 61 graduated from Hampton Institute. A marvelous achievement. 
I offer my appreciation to Mayor Andrew Young, who has provided such gracious hospitality to all of us this week, and a special salute to President Jimmy Carter. President Carter. President Carter restored honor to the White House after Watergate. He gave many of us a special opportunity to grow. For his kind words, for his unwavering commitment to peace in the world, and for the voters that came from his family, every member of his family, led by Billy and Amy, I offer my special thanks to the Carter family. My right and my privilege to stand here before you has been won. Won in my lifetime by the blood and the sweat of the innocent. But 24 years ago, the late Fannie Lou Hamer and Aaron Henry, who sits here tonight from Mississippi, were locked out onto the streets in Atlantic City, the head of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. But tonight, a black and white delegation from Mississippi is headed by Ed Cole, a black man from Mississippi, 24 years later. Many were lost in the struggle for the right to vote. Jimmy Lee Jackson, a young student, gave his life. Valerie Louis So, a white mother from Detroit, called nigger lover and brains blown out at point-blank range. Swanna Goodman and Cheney, two Jews and a black, found in a common grave by the Rilbert Bullets in Mississippi. The four darling little girls in the church in Birmingham, Alabama, they died that we might have a right to live. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. lies only a few miles from us tonight. Tonight he must feel good as he looks down upon us. We sit here together, a rainbow a coalition, the sons and daughters of slave masters and the sons and daughters of slaves sitting together around the common table to decide the direction of our party and our country. His heart would be full tonight as a testament to the struggles of those who have gone before as a legacy for those who will come after, as a tribute to the endurance, the patience, the courage of our forefathers and mothers, as an assurance that their prayers are being answered, that their work has not been in vain, and the hope is eternal. Tomorrow night, my name will go in nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. I grew up in the 60s. I lived on the south side of Chicago. And I was a young girl who loved to stare up at the stars. I imagined myself going there. I studied all the things about the Apollo program. I knew what mission was going to take place when, what it was supposed to accomplish. I decided to go to medical school because I wanted to do something called biomedical engineering. While I was in medical school, I had the opportunity to go and work in a Cambodian refugee camp. I went on to study group in Cuba. I worked with the flying doctors in East Africa. 
but I still wanted to go into space, so I applied. I picked up the phone, I called down to Johnson Space Center, I said, I would like an application to be an astronaut. They didn't laugh. I turned in the application. There may be a certain naivete when I say, when I applied to the astronaut program, I didn't even think about the fact of whether I would be the first African-American woman in space or anything like that. It didn't even cross my I wanted to go into space. I couldn't have cared if there had been a thousand people in space before me or whether there had been none, I wanted to go. I thought it was important to take to space with me things that represented people who sometimes are not included. So I took a poster of Judith Jameson performing the dance cry. I took up a Bundu statue, which was for the Women's Society in West Africa. I took up a flag for the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority, the oldest African-American women's sorority in the United States, because they hadn't been included. And I thought that was an important thing to do. For me, the experience was one that made me feel very connected with the universe. I felt that my being was as much a part of this universe as any star, as any comet. It helped me to recognize that right now, we're in space. This Earth is part of that universe. That was my grand connection. And then I looked down and I saw Chicago. I thought about the little girl who had assumed she would go into space. What would my younger self have thought if she met me? And I think she would have been tickled. When will we learn we're not here all by ourselves And understand there's enough to share the wealth It's not enough just to be my brother's keeper I need to know him much deeper If I could actually feel his pain When my brother is hurting And suffer his sorrow When he's all alone Weakened with hunger When he has no food to eat No homelessness When he has no home Then I will want for him the same as I want for me when I'm not my brother's keeper, but I am he. Yeah.
spoke at the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial as part of the Vietnam Power of Protest Conference. Both Juan and I um, were at this event. Uh, afterwards, people marched to the Martin Luther King Memorial. It was one of Julian Bond's last public speeches. He was introduced by the actor and activist Danny Glover. Julian Bond, at the age of 20, helped found the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. and then kept making history wherever he went. He was elected to the Georgia State House of Representatives in 1965, but members of the House refused to see him because he opposed the war in Vietnam. In 1966, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the House had denied his freedom of speech and, and had to seat him. From 1965 to 1970, Five, he served in the House, Georgia House, and served six terms in the Georgia State Senate from 1975 to 1986. He recently served as chair of the NAACP. I have the honor, distinct honor, of welcoming Julian Bond. Thank you. Thank you a great deal. Thank you. Thank you for this kind welcome. It's fitting that we should have come to this place 
Dr. King believed that peace and the civil rights movement are tied inextricably together, that the people who are working for civil rights are working for peace, and that the people working for peace are working for civil rights and justice. Accordingly, on April 4th, 1967, King delivered his famous speech against the Vietnam War. This was not without risk because the mainstream press immediately denounced his speech, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Life Magazine. King was compelled to speak out, he said, because one, the cost of war made its undertaking the enemy of the poor, two, because poor blacks were disproportionately fighting and dying, and three, because the message of nonviolence is undermined when, in King's words, the United States government is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. George asked me if that was on this memorial. It's not. <laughs> the organization of which I was a part in 1960, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, also felt compelled to speak out against the war a year before King did so. In January 1966, Samuel Young Jr., a Tuskegee Institute student and a colleague in SNCC, went to a civil rights demonstration in his hometown, Tuskegee. He needed to use the bathroom more than most because during his Navy service, including the Cuban blockade, he had lost a kidney. When he tried to use the segregated bathroom at a Tuskegee service station, the owner shot him in the back. The irony of Sammy losing his life after losing his kidney in service to his country prompted SNCC to issue an anti-war statement. We became the first organization to link the prosecution of the Vietnam War with the persecution of blacks at home. We issued a statement which accused the United States of deception in its claims of concern for the freedom of colored people in such countries as the Dominican Republic, the Congo, South Africa, Rhodesia, and in the United States itself. We said the United States is no respecter of persons or laws. It, when such persons or laws run counter to its needs and desires. This, too, was not without risk. I was SNCC's communication director and had just been elected to my first term in the Georgia House of Representatives. When I appeared to take the oath of office, hostility from white legislators was nearly absolute. They prevented me from taking the oath and declared my seat vacant. I ran for the vacancy, and I won again. <laughs> and the legislature declared my seat vacant again. My constituents elected me a third time, and the legislature declared my seat vacant a third time. It would take a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court before I was allowed to take my seat. As King counsel, every man of humane convictions must decide on the protest that best suits his convictions, but we all must protest, and protest we did. And in so doing, we helped to end the war and we changed history. Now we have both a Vietnam Memorial and a Martin Luther King Memorial, but we don't tell the truth about either. As Tom Hayden has written, the worst aspects <coughs> of Vietnam policy are being recycled instead of reconsidered. I urge you to read his forgotten power of Vietnam protest. We refuse to allow the Vietnamese to vote for reunification in 1956 for fear they would vote for Ho Chi Minh. Many people still sadly believe the pervasive post-war myth 
that veterans returning home from Vietnam were commonly spat upon by protesters. <coughs> As Christian Appy says, it became an article of faith that the most shameful aspect of the Vietnam War was the nation's failure to embrace and honor its returning soldiers. Thank you. Honoring returning soldiers doesn't make the war honorable, be it Vietnam or Afghanistan or Iraq. And the best way to honor our soldiers is to bring them safely home. As James Fellows writes, regarding military members as heroes makes up for committing them to unending, unwinnable missions. The Pentagon has chosen to commemorate the Vietnam War as a multi-year, multi-dollar thank you. <clears throat> because as Afghan vet Forey Ranning said, thank you to heroes discouraged dissent. We practiced dissent then. We must practice dissent now. We must, as Dr. King taught us, move beyond the prophesying of smooth patriotism to the high ground of a firm dissent based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history. As King said now, then, and is even more true now, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. I want to close as King closed his Vietnam speech with an excerpt from James Russell's Lowell's The Present Crisis. He wrote, once to every man and nation comes the nation moment to decide in the tr strife of truth and falsehood for the good or evil side. Some great cause, God's new Messiah, offering each the bloom or blight and the choice goes by forever twixt that darkness and the light. Though the cause of equal prosper, yet tis truth alone is strong. Though her per portion be the Stafford, and upon the throne, throne be wrong, yet the scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. I wish us the right choice. Thank you. Civil rights leader Julian Bond speaking in May at the Vietnam Power of Protest Conference in Washington at the Martin Luther King Memorial. It was one of his last public speeches. Julian Bond died August 15th at the age of 75. At the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, Julian Bond became the first African-American nominated for U.S. Vice President by a major political party, but he had to withdraw his name because he was just 28 years old, seven years too young to hold the second highest elected office. If you want to see our hour special, Remembering the Life... I always understood that there really was no difference between me and the audience. At times, I might have had better shoes, but at the core, the core of, of, of what really matters, that we are the same. And you know how I know that? Because all of us are seeking the same thing. You're here at this fabulous school, and we'll go out into the world and each pursue based upon what you believe your talents are, what your skills are, maybe your gifts are, but you're seeking the same thing. Everybody wants to fulfill the highest, truest expression of yourself as a human being. That's what you're looking for. The highest, truest expression of yourself as a human being. And because I understand that, I understand that if you're working in a bakery and that's where you wanna be, 
and that may be the that may be what you've always wanted to do is to bake pies for people or bake cakes for people or to offer your gift then then that's that's for you and there's no difference between you and me except that's how that's your platform mm -hmm. that's your show every day so my understanding of that has allowed me to you know to, to, to reach everyone and and there's no way that you wouldn't because that's that's what I truly feel the way through the challenge is to get still and ask yourself what is the next right move not think about oh I got all of this to be. what is the next right move and then from that space make the next right move and the next right move and not to be overwhelmed by it because you know your life is bigger than that one moment you know you're not defined by what somebody says is a failure for you because failure is just there to point you in a different direction if I leave you with nothing else it's just know this for sure there is not one thing that has ever happened to you not one experience not one encounter, not one crisis, not one joyful thing that hasn't happened just to make you better and help you rise. Every single thing you're calling in, whether you know it or not, when you figure out that you are calling it in, when you actually start meditating or praying or doing or having a spiritual practice, which is the number one thing you need if you wanna be successful in the world. You need something that gives back and nourishes you regardless of what you call that. You need, to, you need to fill your cup so that you can be so full, your cup runneth over and you have enough to give to other people. If you don't fill your cup, you end up dried up. You end up tired, exhausted, and don't have enough to give to other people. You end up resentful every time somebody asks you because your cup is empty and now they want some of yours. <laughs> so your number one job, your number one job is to fill your cup and make yourself whole. So for me, the foundational base of empowerment, of entrepreneurship, of any kind of engagement, the foundational base of my success, of my well-being, my wholeness, my everything, is knowing who I am and where I come from. In my living room right now is a painting that I've owned now for 30 years. You can Google it. It's called To the Highest Bidder. And it's at the center of my house. And it's at the center of my house because it actually is symbolic of the foundation of not the house, but the foundation for my life. The painting is by Harry Rosalind, who was a genre painter, painter in the uh, early 20th, late 19th century. And the painting's over six feet tall, and it shows a slave woman on the auction block holding her daughter's hand. And I cannot come in the door, my front door, or I cannot leave without passing that painting. I am reminded of where I come from every day of my life, and I am reminded because I never want to forget it. And in my library, I have a framed list of enslaved African-American people, remember I showed you, um, who were held in bondage on various plantations, listed in the ledgers alongside the cows and the horses and the buggies and the other property. 
And I pass this list every day. And often I stop in front of it and just speak their names out loud and their ages. Jonas, 11 years old, $500. Sarah, 41 years old, $900. Elizabeth, 57, $800. And I force myself to consider the absurdity and the obscenity of prices being affixed to each one should they be placed up for sale. And I sometimes just pause before them with a prayer, particularly before I have to make a big decision about one of my companies or whether I move forward or whether I stay still. It reminds me, speaking those names out loud, not only of where I've come from, but how far I have to go because of them. And it reminds me that I am never alone. It reminds me of what I've come through to get through. I say to the, my girls all of the time that your real work is to figure out where your power base is and to work on the alignment of your personality, your gifts that you have to give, with the real reason why you're here. That's, that's the number one thing you have to do, is to work on yourself and to fill yourself up and keep your cup full, keep yourself full. Now, I used to be afraid of that. I used to be afraid, particularly from people who say, oh, she's, she's so full of herself, mm, she's so full of herself. And now I embrace it. I, I consider it a compliment that I am full of myself. Because you only when you're full, I'm full, I'm overflowing, my cup runneth over. I have so much, I have so much to offer and so much to give. And I am not afraid of honoring myself, you know. It's miraculous when you think about it. Everybody has a different talent. And the reason we're all so messed up is because you're looking at everybody else's talent. And wishing you had some of their talent. All the energy that you spend thinking about, wishing about, being jealous of, envious of anybody else is energy that you're not only putting out that's going to come back to you negatively, but you're taking that away from you. All your energy should be forced on what do I have to offer? What do I have to give? How can I be used in service? Because Dr. King's message of not everybody can be famous, but everybody can be great because greatness is determined by service. And there is not a job in here that you can do that you don't switch the paradigm to service and not make that job more fulfilling. I don't care what the job is. If you say, I'm a singer, I'm a dancer, I'm an artist, I'm a teacher, I'm a nurse, I'm a doctor, I'm a janitor, I'm a, I'm a clerk, I'm a... If you say, if I look at this from, how do I use this in service to something bigger than myself? It no longer becomes a job. It becomes an offering to the world. The first law is the third law of motion in physics, which says, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And we showed that very beautifully in The Color Purple, when Miss Seeley says to Mr., everything you even try to do to me is already done to you. Mm. 
That is not just a, a rhetorical saying, that is law. That is Newton's third law of motion in physics, which says everything that goes out is coming back. Mm. It's just like everything that goes up is coming down, may take it a long time to come down, is coming down. <laughs> everything that goes out is coming back, it's coming back. So to answer the power of manifestation and meditation, what meditation does is sync you up with the source. What meditation does is allows you to literally tap into the power that created you so that you are in alignment with that. And so when you carry that out into the world, everything that you do comes from the center of that alignment that's coming from the source that we call God, we call divine energy, divine intelligence, whatever name you want to give it, we call life. When you are synced up with life, life just gives to you.
I cannot tell you everything that we know, but what I can share with you when combined with what all of us have learned over the years is deeply troubling. What you will see is an accumulation of facts and disturbing patterns of behavior. The facts in Iraqi's behavior, Iraq's behavior, demonstrate that Saddam Hussein and his regime have made no effort, no effort, to disarm as required by the international community. Indeed, the facts and Iraq's behavior show that Saddam Hussein and his regime are concealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction. None of this should come as a surprise to any of us. Terrorism has been a tool used by Saddam for decades. Saddam was a supporter of terrorism long before these terrorist networks had a name. And this support continues. The nexus of poisons and terror is new. The nexus of Iraq and terror is old. The combination is lethal. With this track record, Iraqi denials of supporting terrorism take their place alongside the other Iraqi denials of weapons of mass destruction. It is all a web of lies. When we confront a regime that harbors ambitions for regional domination, hides weapons of mass destruction, and provides haven and active support for terrorists, we are not confronting the past. We are confronting the present. And unless we act, we are confronting an even more frightening future. My friends, this has been a long and a detailed presentation, and I thank you for your patience, but there is one more subject that I would like to touch on briefly, and it should be a subject of deep and continuing concern to this council, Saddam Hussein's violations of human rights. Underlying all that I have said, underlying all the facts and the patterns of behavior that I have identified is Saddam Hussein's contempt for the will of this council, his contempt for the truth, and most damning of all, his utter contempt for human life. Saddam Hussein's use of mustard and nerve gas against the Kurds in 1988 1988 was one of the 20th century's most horrible atrocities. 5,000 men, women, and children died. His campaign against the Kurds from 1987 to 89 included mass summary executions, disappearances, arbitrary jailing, ethnic cleansing, and the destruction of some 2,000 villages. He has also conducted ethnic cleansing against the Shia Iraqis and the Marsh Arabs whose culture has flourished for more than a millennium. Saddam Hussein's police state Ruthly, ruthlessly eliminates anyone who dares to dissent. Iraq has more forced disappearance cases than any other country. Tens of thousands of people reported missing in the past decade. Nothing points more clearly to Saddam Hussein's dangerous intentions and the threat he poses to all of us than his calculated cruelty to his own citizens and to his neighbors. Clearly, Saddam Hussein and his regime will stop at nothing until something stops him. For more than 20 years, by word and by deed, Saddam Hussein has pursued his ambition to dominate Iraq and the broader Middle East using the only means he knows, intimidation, coercion, and annihilation of all those who might stand in his way. For Saddam Hussein, possession of the world's most deadly weapons is the ultimate trump card, the one he must hold to fulfill his ambition. We know that Saddam Hussein is determined to keep his weapons of mass destruction. He's determined to make more. 
given Saddam Hussein's history of aggression, given what we know of his grandiose plans, given what we know of his terrorist associations, and given his determination to exact revenge on those who oppose him, should we take the risk that he will not someday use these weapons at a time and a place and in a manner of his choosing at a time when the world is in a much weaker position to respond. The United States will not and cannot run that risk to the American people. Leaving Saddam Hussein in possession of weapons of mass destruction for a few more months or years is not an option, not in a post-September 11th world. My colleagues, over three months ago, this council recognized that Iraq continued to pose a threat to international peace and security, and that Iraq had been and remained in material breach of its disarmament obligations. Today, Iraq still poses a threat, and Iraq still remains in material breach. Indeed, by its failure to seize on its one last opportunity to come clean and disarm, Iraq has put itself in deeper material breach and closer to the day when it will face serious consequences for its continued defiance of this council. My colleagues, we have an obligation to our citizens. We have an obligation to this body to see that our resolutions are complied with. We wrote 1441 not in order to go to war. We wrote 1441 to try to preserve the peace. We wrote 1441 to give Iraq one last chance. Iraq is not so far taking that one last chance. We must not shrink from whatever is ahead of us. We must not fail in our duty and our responsibility to the citizens of the countries that are represented by this body. By the end of the first season, I had so much fan mail that I didn't know I had um, that was in the mail room um, that they offered me a contract. I also was offered <laughs> a, 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 a role, a play to do uh, that was Broadway bound. And I was going to leave the show and take that. Um, and it was a good role. Forget what the heck it was now. And um, so I went in and told Jean that I was going to, when the season was up, I was going to leave. And Jean says, You can't do that. Yes, I can. <laughs> and he said, don't you understand what I'm trying to achieve here? I said, Gene, you've been wonderful. And, and I, I really thank you for this opportunity. But you know, I'm, this is, my life is theater, musical theater. And this is, I'm getting off for, offers for all kinds of wonderful things where I want to be. And he was sitting behind his desk, and he looked up at me, and he said, and I handed him my resignation that I'd written out. And he took it, and he just, I finally laid it on the desk, and he looked at it, and he said, 
Take the weekend, Michelle, because that's how I know it was either Thursday or Friday. As he says, and think about it. And if you feel the same way the beginning of next week, if you still feel that way, think about this. It's more than you think it is. Just think about it. And if you still want to go on mo by Monday morning, I, I'll give you my blessing. You go with my blessings. And he took the resignation, stuck it in his desk drawer. And I said, thanks, Jean, and I skipped out of there. Whew, that went better than I thought. And as fate would have it, I've always used this way because I believe in fate. I believe it was fated. I was to be a celebrity guest at some fundraising in Be thing in Beverly Hills. Um, I believe it was an NAACP fundraiser, but it might not have been, but I, th I think it was. Um, and so I went to do this on that Saturday night, and I had just been taken to the dais and sat down. When the organizer came over and said, Miss Nichols, uh, how are you, and blah, 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 and he said, um, listen, um, there's someone here who said, he is your biggest fan, and he's looking cherapy, you know, and, and he said, and he's desperate to meet you. He wants, really wants to meet you. And I said, oh, thank you. Now I know, you know, lots of fan mail, and I've seen it, the shows, and they're, oh, they're being on for, you know, and, 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 and the ones that I got to see, because usually I didn't get home until after the show was over. <laughs> I didn't see the most of Star Trek that I was in until the reruns. <laughs> And um, and I was on hiatus at best. Um, so I got, I said, certainly. And I stand up and turn, and I'm thinking, it's a Star Trek fan. He said, it's a Star Trek fan. I'm looking for a young man who's a Star Trek fan. I turn, and instead of fan, there's th this face the world knows with this beautiful smile on it. And I remember thinking, whoever that fan is, is going to have to wait because Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King, my leader, is walking toward me, not 10 feet away, with a beautiful smile on his face. And then this man says, yes, Miss Nichols, I am that fan. I am your best fan, your greatest fan, and my family are your greatest fans. As a matter of fact, this is the only show on television that my wife, Coretta, and I will allow our little children to watch, to stay up and watch, because it's on past their bedtime. And I said, which was all that I was able to say. My mouth just opened and closed. He said, we admire you greatly, you know. And I 
he said some more things, and and the the manner in which you've created this role uh, has dignity and so forth, and and he said, you know, um, and before he said, I said, Dr. King, thank you so much. Um, and then I got the courage to say, and I really am going to miss my co-stars. And he said, what do you mean? Dead serious. What are you talking about? I said, well, I've had an off, he said, you cannot, and I said, well, I've, I'm going to leave Star Trek because I'm ha- going to say have an offer to star in, 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 I never got that far. I said, well, I'm leaving Star Trek. He's, he said, you cannot. You cannot. And I felt like that little boy, Willis, what you talking about, Dr. King? <laughs> but you know I didn't say that. No. But I was taken aback, and I, I didn't say anything. I just looked at him. He said... Don't you understand what this man has achieved? Is, is achieving or something? This, and I thought, deja vu all over again. I s- just looked at him. He said, for the first time on television, we will be seen as we should be seen every day, as intelligent, quality beautiful people who can sing, dance, but who can go into space, who can be lawyers, who can be teachers, who can be professors, who are in this day, and yet you don't see it on television until now. And he went on, so so many of the things, perhaps some of the things he, he said, but I could say nothing. I just stood there realizing every word that he was saying was the truth. And he said, if you leave, Nichelle, Gene Roddenberry has opened a door for the world to see us. If you leave, that door can be closed because you see, your role is not a black role. And it's not a female role. He can fill it with anything, including an alien. And at that moment, the world tilted for me. And I knew then, I didn't want to know it, because I was going to go through some more turmoil for the rest of the week and but I knew that I was something else that the world was not the same and that's all I could think of as Dr. King everything that he had said the world sees us for the first time as we should be seen. 
And I remember being angry come Sunday or, or whatever. Um, why me? Why should I have to? Whatever happened come Monday morning, I went to Jean, and I'm not sure to this day if I knew what I was going to say. He's sitting behind that same dang desk. And he had whoever he was talking to had to, to leave because I went there first. And I said, Gene, and I told him what happened. And I said, if you still want me to stay, I'll stay. I have to. And he opened his drawer and he looked up at me and said, God bless Dr. Martin Luther King. Somebody knows what I'm coming from. And I said, that's what he said <laughs> in my brain. And he took out my resignation, which was torn into a hundred pieces and handed me the pile. And we just stood there looking at each other. And I finally said, thank you, Jean. And he said, thank you, Nichelle. And my life's never been the same since. And I've never looked back. I've never regretted it. Because I understood the universe had somehow, that universal mind had somehow put me there. And we have choices. Are we going to walk down this road or are we going to walk down the other? And it was, it was the right road for me. No brag, just fact. In a class all by itself, it is the most unique sound ever created. It is the Mighty P Podcast and the original Sinbad. Oh, yes, indeed, my jazz brothers and sisters, that one was off the hook. Celebrating the bad, the good, and the ugly, the legacy of black history. It's America history. It really is. Again, I want to thank you guys so much for listening. Like always, I enjoyed myself hanging out with you. I wouldn't have it any other way. I love having your ear holes listening to this great program we call Jazz in All of Its Colors. Hope to see you real soon on the other side. Hope you're enjoying the brand new year. Remember what the man said upstairs, and it's all true. He said, work hard, dream big, and never give up. You too can make it happen. I love you guys. I really do. We'll talk soon and make it happen one more time.
What a lovely, precious dream In this whole wide world 